everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? Uh, podcast brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Ian Rowe, a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And today we are going to uh, talk to you about the latest coronavirus subjects that everybody is interested in, particularly education. And so uh, we have a couple of guests and Ian is going to introduce them. Yeah, I'm very excited to have two legendary leaders in education reform, two folks that I've learned a tremendous amount uh, during my time as a leader in education. Uh, we have both Chris Cerf and Steve Wilson. Chris was chancellor of Newark schools, deputy chancellor uh, in New York City, superintendent of New Jersey schools, Steve Wilson, former CEO of Ascend Learning. Both uh, amazing guys who are thinking very critically about what is happening in our country in schools uh, related to the coronavirus and the fact that as crazy as we're in a situation now where millions of kids are engaged in some form of remote learning, and hopefully they are, some version of asynchronous learning, we know that this summer, the problem that already exists of summer learning loss will be even more acute given that so many kids for these last few months have not been engaged in rigorous learning. So I know Chris and Stephen, you've done some great thinking about what should be happening this summer when parents, you know, for example, you know, lots of summer camps and normal summer activities are not going to be happening. So we literally could have millions of young people not engaged in any kind of serious learning or enrichment. Tell us your thoughts on what should be happening uh, this summer. Well, let me start, uh, if I might, by sort of taking a sounding on uh, That's Chris talking, by the way, everyone. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, taking a little bit of a sounding on sort of where we are. Um, you know, the great majority of schools in the country essentially suspended brick and mortar operations, at least. There remains talk in a handful of states around coming back um, this spring, but uh, there's very little uh, expectation that that will happen, at least in the substantial majority of places. The consequence of that, I think, are really twofold, and this really takes us to the question of summer. You know, first of all, learning um, the, the reading, writing, and arithmetic, you know, learning how to read well and learning how to do mathematics and science um, and so on is a progressive process, and interruption in that process really has potentially long-term effects, and um, more broadly, it affects children disproportionately if they're already struggling to keep to keep pace. The second thing to bear in mind is schools are more than just a place where formal learning takes place. They're a place where there's engagement, where there's an almost spiritual connection to the teacher and the other adults in the building, where people can be learn how to collaborate, learn how to disagree, um, move their bodies in the form of calisthenics and exercise and so on. And a lot of that is difficult to substitute with a purely remote solution. So the next window when we can think about bringing back some of those important features um, really is the summer. Um, and so I think as a broad proposition, and I'll hand the, um, this back over to my colleague, Stephen, as a broad proposition, parents, educators, government officials, should be thinking very, very hard about how to use the, the summer months as a way to continue to advance those core purposes. 
I think that's exactly right, Chris. And I, I think it'd be useful to say that we know that most children are not able to access now uh, the kind of instruction that they need. Um, uh, this The Center on Reinventing Public public education where I'm a fellow, uh, surveys districts every week to see uh, their progress. And uh, our last measure of this is that only about 27% of school districts are providing curriculum instruction and progress monitoring, right? So those are the essential ingredients for a serious take at moving children ahead academically. That means that two thirds of students are not receiving education by which we can reasonably expect uh, that progress will be, serious progress will be made. The other thing we know is that parents are alarmed. If we look at a, a number of different surveys that have come out over the last uh, two or three weeks, it shows um, extraordinary levels of parent anxiety about their children falling behind. Uh, interestingly, most pronounced among low-income uh, parents and parents of color. Uh, so we just simply have to act on this on this need uh, and this, uh, I think, really, it's an emergency. Those are the concerns they have today about mm -hmm. their kids in school now, where there's a whole infrastructure of teachers already expected to be teaching. How do you then address this in the summer when that same infrastructure is not actually in session? Well, I think in a way it creates an opportunity, a word that we should use with hesitation uh, in a crisis like this. But there is a chance for uh, people that have been working in silos of organizations. They've been working in their own district. They've been working in a particular charter network uh, and not been in conversation, not been in uh, collaboration with others to come together to meet this need. Uh, and that's something that Chris and I are, are beginning to, to explore. But imagine if children around the country could be able to tap um, among the nation's best teachers, because after all, if you can teach one to 30, you can teach uh, in many ways a much larger group of, of children all at once. And I think that's um, something that we need to give various thought to. Of course, there has to be the local teacher who has the relationship, who is um, looking at the work that they're producing, is providing the emotional support uh, and the sense of, of family and community. But there are ways to approach this um, in a national way that could be uh, extremely powerful. But what we do know is that uh, we have to have an academically serious intervention in these crucial months uh, before children return to school, even if they return to school at all in the form that we recognize it today. We can't lose these precious months. I was going to ask, it's interesting because I think that a lot of the um, the narrative that you're hearing now, um, both among folks in the education space, but also among people who are trying to counsel families and lower the rate of anxiety is sort of saying to people, just chill out, you know, your kids will be fine, uh, we'll get through this. And, um, you know, you're not going to turn into a homeschooler overnight. And, um, you know, if we lose a few months, it'll be fine. I heard, uh, I was listening to a, a family counselor the other day, uh, talking to people about after a, a like a natural disaster. They measured kids a year later um, who had been out of school for two months and measured them a couple of years later and found that the kids, um, even the kids who had just been out of school completely were actually 
you know, doing just fine, if not better than their peers. So do you um, do you think that there's uh, sort of too much of the kind of calm down element out there? And um, and it's interesting what you said about who the parents are who are most concerned, because I think a lot of the focus has been on sort of the middle class anxiety about this. Um, so can you sort of talk about why you think there's so much of the um, uh, everything's going to be all right uh, response right now? Well, I think part of it is a, a, a real misimpression about how we are going to come back to to normalcy. Um, both the media and certain elected officials are suggesting that there will be a moment when a switch is flipped. And, you know, whether it's May 15th or June 15th, the world will return uh, back to its uh, pre-existing um, order. And it's absolutely not going to work that way, as any, I think, sensible public health official will, will tell you. There are some populations that are medically fragile or especially vulnerable uh, that can be defined by age. There are some uh, individuals as testing advances who are uh, have been exposed but are not yet uh, showing symptoms. There are some who are actually ill. Uh, there are some populations where the, the the virus is well under control, some regions, some not. So I think we can expect to see um, a staggered start, a start that maybe goes in waves, um, and that one that affects different populations differently at different times. So uh, some of the um, folks going, well, this is not that big a deal. And frankly, I don't believe that is by any means the majority of folks um, out there are perhaps uh, operating under a slightly optimistic view that all we need to do is hold on there for another couple of weeks or, or a month or whatever uh, the measure of time may be, and we'll be, be fine. Um, the second thing I really think needs to be stressed, and one of the things that this pandemic is really casting a sharp light on in this country, is it is not affecting everybody equally. Um, it's certainly not affecting people who have the means to stay at home for an extended period of time, the same as someone who is living paycheck to paycheck, to be example. The disease itself is affecting different demographic groups differently. But the one I think we're focusing on on podcast is children who are lagging in terms of their own learning uh, for a variety of reasons that really have nothing to do with their choice uh, are and research shows this convincingly are most likely to be affected by an interruption in learning. Um, and that is a really critical fact to bear in mind. In terms of the, the summer school stuff, do you do you envision something that districts should do that would be mandatory, or parents would voluntarily sign up their kids? How would how would it work? Well, I'm not a big mandatory guy uh, uh, on anything. I, I I see how that uh, sometimes doesn't work well. But here's what I think um, should happen: there should be created an absolutely enticing offering that has both a national dimension and a local dimension where children are strongly encouraged to participate in an activity that's four hours, four or five hours a day, um, where they can um, essentially simulate the human experience of, of learning in a remote environment. It's not go off and do a digital workshop book, go off and take an adaptive test and come back and report back whether you gain 10 lexiles. It is problem solving together. It is um, collaboration exercises. It's virtual laboratories, stepping back and doing a yoga class or a calisthenic class. Or, um, and um, I believe if that can be created, and Stephen and I believe that it can be created um, uh, in a way that leverages the best teachers in the country to work with tremendous talent at the local um, level, 
and puts it all on a platform that allows for synchronous learning um, opportunities. It can be exciting. It can be enticing. It can be rewarding. It can be human. Um, and I think um, that will, if that is done correctly, attract a very significant number of parents and children. Got it. And, the, you know, the federal government is literally printing, you know, trillions in, of dollars of stimulus. Where, where do the resources come from for something like this? How, do, how does this work? And w- if it were to come to be, would districts have to pay? Like, how, do, how would it work? I don't think it's actually um, enormously expensive. I think that uh, under the model that we're imagining, uh, you have a core of uh, master teachers, as Chris and I think of them, that, um, as, as Chris said, are drawn from many different organizations and who are enormously engaging, we could even say charismatic, uh, clear, wonderful teachers. Uh, and who come across the screen with incredible intensity. And they're joined by, so that cost is low because as as we said earlier, they could be reaching thousands, uh, if not tens of thousands of students. So this is a very modest cost. At the the district or local level, uh, it's the cost of teachers who work for say a five week period this summer um, this is something that, uh, by the way, that that districts and charter organizations already do, but it's very often a back of mind, uh, insignificant in the scheme of things project. It doesn't receive the kind of attention that this moment requires, but there simply is no reason that we could not offer uh, thousands of students exemplary education, really great education. And that's just, that's not happening today. And, and uh, really through, through no one's fault. It's um, districts are, are not themselves equipped to suddenly turn on a dime and offer uh, high quality virtual instruction. But we know what it takes because we have learned that if we really wanna move kids fast, there are certain components of effective instruction which absolutely can be replicated um, in a virtual setting and happy to talk about that. But these are things that we would like all children to experience and we would like teachers across the land to be introduced to these extremely powerful techniques. I'm talking about the things that reverse the achievement gap. Uh, and it's entirely doable and it's scalable. If you have a teacher teaching tens of thousands, I mean, it's not it's not a participatory. It doesn't seem a, like it's a participatory experience. So, you know, how do you sort of prevent it from just being like kids staring at a screen watching lecture? Yeah, this is Naomi. This is my fault and how I described it. it. It is very much a participatory experience because the the master teacher would be uh, welcoming, of course all of the children and would be presenting the key concept and leading the way. But the partner teachers in every locality would be working closely with their 30 or so or 20 children. And through the miracle of tools like Cami, a little known uh, piece of technology that allows you to see exactly what the student's work is doing as they're marking up the problem or they're jotting on the poem in search of its uh, of its uh, meaning, uh, the, the, the teacher can see exactly what is being produced. And by the way, that is one of the, uh, what I would cite is the two essential elements of this very rapid paced instruction, which is a, a tremendous focus on what students are actually creating. 
So if you were to sit in on one of these classes, what you would see is a blend of this exposition and leadership by the uh, the master teacher, and then a lot of student work. Most of the instructional time is students actually producing the work themselves and getting knee deep in the uh, in the geometry proof and the 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 exposition of the poem or the the scientific experiment. So it's it's highly interactive. In fact, it has to be. So if you were to create this infrastructure where master teachers are able to teach thousands, if not tens of thousands of kids, and then local teachers have more of a tutoring role, you know, reviewing individual work, that sounds like an incredible infrastructure that if it's durable enough, why wouldn't you want that to persist uh, into the fall? Uh, Ian, you can't say those things. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there might be some teachers unions that might be upset about that, but it seems well, like that's a structure that if successful for five weeks in the summer, especially well, me, this fall, you'd want that to continue. Yeah, Ian, let, let me take that on. So, so and then let me merge the, your question with uh, the, last, the last exchange. You know, I deeply believe, and um, I know Stephen deeply believes, that um, this needs to be a teacher-centered modality. That I, that, you know, I, I almost hesitate to use the word virtual versus Um, brick and mortar, because what you want to do is extract the power of human interaction and quality instruction. And then the modality through which it's delivered is frankly driven by circumstances like the presence of a pandemic. So I believe that the kind of thing Stephen and I are talking about, uh, which would be, you know, I don't know, five weeks, five, six weeks um, in, in the summer, creates the foundation uh, for a broader application in the fall. But I don't want that to be confused with a suggestion that that is a substitute for brick and mortar school or that that is you know, a new way of, of thinking about what school is. I believe what the country yearns for and the country needs is to be prepared to offer quality, interpersonal, engaging education that fosters curiosity, that supports collaboration, um, regardless of the public health circumstances we find ourselves in. And I believe that the work that we hope to be able to sponsor this summer could be a critical building block, if not a foundation, for essentially prepared for whatever eventuality presents itself um, in the fall. And as as I noticed, as I noted before, I don't think it is likely that all of a sudden school will be open. I think different populations will be receiving their education by different means uh, in different ways for some time to the future. All right. Well, we have to wrap things up. Where can people go to find out more about this and and, uh, how will we get any updates on whether this kind of uh, summer school might be available? Well, we'll, we hope to be announcing something in the next uh, couple of weeks or so, and we will create a uh, a website for everyone to turn to. We don't have that ready to announce today, uh, but we look forward to that moment, and we'll certainly let you both know. I, I just want to add one thing, uh, and that is we absolutely view this to be a not-for-profit um, and to be something that is available philanthropically uh, in terms of the sort of central uh, delivery with uh, localities um, having to pick up local costs, you know. All like right. Well, I hope some donors out there are listening. Yeah. 
Um, so it thank seems you like both a well, very- worthwhile philanthropic investment for sure. Thank you both very much for coming on to Are You Kidding Me? Uh, this podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. You can download it uh, at the American Enterprise Institute website, AEI.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Thanks, Thanks so guys. much for joining us.